Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everybody, welcome to FT Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. A quick reminder that this week we are launching our brand new long-form-only economics and business podcast. It is a kind of sibling podcast to Alpha Chat, and we're calling it Alpha Chatterbox. You can find it wherever you find podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and a number of other places. We really hope you'll sign up. We think you're going to really like it. And you're going to find a lot of conversations that delve very deeply into some fascinating topics with some of the world's best thinkers. But for now, let's get on with today's show. And at the top of the show, we are taking a clip from this week's Alpha Chatterbox long-form interview with Anne-Marie Slaughter. She is the author of the newly published Unfinished Business a book about gender equality in the workplace and at home. We really enjoyed this conversation, and we think you will too. Right after that, we're going to be talking with Shannon Bond about President Xi Jinping of China's visit to the U.S. this week. It was overshadowed by press coverage of the Pope, Vladimir Putin, and Donald Trump. What, if anything, does that say about the U.S.-China geopolitical relationship and the U.S. media's priorities? And last, Internet access in Cuba, one of the least connected countries in the Western Hemisphere, is finally starting to expand. We'll discuss what implications this might have for the country and its politics with Emily Parker, author of the book Now I Know Who My Comrades Are. In the first segment, we're going to play a few clips from our conversation with Anne-Marie Slaughter about her new book, Unfinished Business. Anne-Marie was a former director of policy planning at the U.S. State Department under then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and Anne-Marie is now the CEO and president of New America, a think tank She wrote an article in The Atlantic five years ago, Why Women Still Can't Have It All, that made a huge splash. I was joined for this conversation by Amelia Mahasik, who you might know from the weekly follow-up segment. And in the first clip, we talk about how the book came about. So it's always kind of hard to know where to start when we're covering an entire book, right? (laughs) But here's where I want to start, because this book, it builds on, but also goes in a different direction from an article that you wrote in The Atlantic about five years ago. The title of that was Why Women Still Can't Have It All. And you say in the book... That that title, although catchy and provocative, wasn't entirely comprehensive, I guess. That a better title, a more accurate title, would have been Why Working Mothers Need Better Choices to Be Able to Stay in the Pool and Make It to the Top. As a journalist, (laughs) I get why they didn't choose that, okay? But why don't you start by talking about the aftermath of that article, why that title would have been more appropriate, and what's happened since? Sure. So the, the title of the article, as you said, was Why Women Still Can't Have It All, and I in negotiating the title with the Atlantic, I thought that still signaled to everybody, here are the changes we still need to make. So that I was saying, of course, women can, in fact, fit work and family together the way men can, but we have to make all these changes. That is not how many people read it, and many people did not read more than the title, which meant that I have spent three years now being introduced as, this is Anne-Marie Slaughter, she says women can't have it all, which is sort of the opposite of who I am and what I've done and why I I wrote the article. And so the book is an effort, first place, to get rid of the have it all. That's just not a helpful frame. But really to say, 
here's what we need to do to get to real equality between men and women. Okay, yeah, and I was going to say that uh, it did lead to a lot of kind of distracting conversations about whether or not men have ever had it all. Your point is, well, actually, I recognize that this is not an anti-feminist platform. It's very much in keeping with traditional feminist ideals. But you got a little bit of backlash because of that. A little bit, yes. (laughs) I got a lot of backlash. Uh, And I think even for people who understood what I was saying, my generation of feminists felt very strongly, many of them, that... I couldn't do this, that this was going to discourage younger women, that this was going to undo all the work that we and the women before us have worked so hard to achieve to to show younger women, yes, get into the workforce, you can make it. So I think what really happened was I caught an intergenerational wave where daughters were having this conversation with mothers, and then they brought home, in my, brought home my article and said, see, Henry Slaughter says it's not so easy either, which didn't endear me to many mothers. Hey, listeners, it's Carter speaking to you directly. And in this next clip we're going to play, Amelia asks Anne-Marie about how better to keep women in the labor pool. The issue, seems to me, remains that for women to be in leadership positions, chief executive positions, state department leaders and so on, that degree of commitment that is required in those positions is relentless. And to do that, to to be as relentless and uh, engaged as you need to be, it means uh, making that choice of a fairly full-on commitment that something else takes the back seat, whether it's, you know, if you're single, it's your personal life, it's your friends, it's your family. And that doesn't seem to be something that we can get past. And hence, you know, only something like 3 to 5% of women are in chief executive positions. Until we change leadership to have more women, we won't change other things like gender pay, inequality and so on. And one of the things you advocate in, in your book, if I'm not wrong, is the value of caregiving giving that higher value. But how would that make it more possible for women to be in leadership positions? So let's break, let's look at different categories of women. So for many women, and again, and men, in their 30s, early 40s, sort of prime caregiving years, uh, up up really to the 50s, there's a period at which you should be able to go sideways for a while, uh, not go up, and yet still be on leadership track. And that would keep a lot of women in the pool. That was my original, (laughs) the real title of my article. We need a lot of ways to keep women in the pool, and I would say and men in the pool, so that they can make this happen at a very specific period in their lives. I mean, kids, you know, don't stay young forever. So that, that applies for the middle of the pool. For people at the top, women or men, you cannot have a family and one of those jobs without a lead parent at home. And this is what I call the new double standard. You know, we go to Davos, we look at all these CEOs, nobody expects them to be the lead parent. I mean, it's just out of the question. How could you be? You're on a plane all the time. You know, when when the school nurse calls or you have to show up for whatever that crisis is, somebody else is at home. And my point is we are asking women to do something we would never ask men to do. So if we really are going to have women at the top, that's a, and that's a small category for men or women, right? That's a very small category, very highly successful and ambitious people. Then women are going to have to have what men have always had, which is a lead parent at home. And if you're a same-sex couple, that's very obvious. It's, it should be, and it is actually true for a large number of women CEOs, but nobody wants to talk about it. And that means younger women are not really understanding 
what it's going to take if they want to get all the way to the top. Hey, listeners, it's Cardiff again. In this next clip, we ask Anne-Marie to give us a few of her policy recommendations. Her book argues that over time, society has placed too much value on competitive work at the expense of work that involves caring for others and for oneself. And she thinks both matter a lot, but that caring work should be considered just as important as competition. Here's the clip. The policy recommendations I make are far less likely to affect the CEOs or would-be CEOs who can buy their way out of problems and much more likely to affect the millions of women we haven't talked about, right? The millions of women. We have too few women at the top and too many at the bottom. So the majority of uh, poor in the United States, again, overwhelmingly female, uh, two-thirds of shift workers, the majority of uh, minimum wage workers, all women, and many of them the sole breadwinner and caregivers. So by choosing the frame of care and competition, what I want us to focus on is how we are not supporting care as a society and all the bad things that is doing to us because we really are not allowing parents who want to, mothers, fathers, to invest in their kids. And what I'm saying is you need, you know, you need maternity and paternity leave. You need paid family leave generally. So that's for, it's not just for your children. I'm, I'm born in 1950. Eight. That's the height of the baby boom. You know, we are aging incredibly fast. I mean, the, the generation. Uh, so we're facing an elder boom. So you're going to need paid family leave to, to be able to take care of your parents. And then we need high quality, affordable daycare, something that we got close to in 1971 and have gotten further and further from ever since. And that though that combination of those things, paid leave, equal maternity and paternity leave and high-quality daycare would really revolutionize the ability of men and women, but particularly women, to be able to be to stay in the workforce and be the kind of parents or caregivers they want to be. Hey, listeners, it's Cardiff. One last time, I just want to remind you that you can listen to the entire conversation with Anne-Marie Slaughter at our brand new long-form podcast, Alpha Chatterbox, which you can find on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And in the next segment, it was a fascinating week to observe the way the U.S. media treats foreign leaders. And in particular, Chinese President Xi Jinping seems to have been overshadowed by the collective trio of Pope, Trump, and Putin. Here to discuss this with me is Shannon Bond on the line from Washington. Shannon, you wear so many hats here, I'm starting to lose track. Why are you in Washington? Um, there's an election going on, and people what? spend a lot of money on uh, media and advertising. Well, some people, not Donald Trump, but that's another subject. So I'm down here uh, doing some political sourcing up and hanging out with our team here. Political reporting. Okay, so just so everybody knows, your official title is U.S. media correspondent, but in your time here, you've written about media, politics, tech, business, corporate stuff. I've lost track. A little bit of everything. Yeah. So anyways, you wrote this piece with Jeff Dyer and Dmitry Sevastopolo, also in Washington, about how President Xi Jinping has essentially been overshadowed during his week-long stay in the U.S. He's just returned to China today. Why was he overshadowed given the prominence of the U.S.-China relationship and the extent to which we really should recognize that the U.S.-China geopolitical relationship is something that's probably going to define the better part of the next century or so, maybe? Why was he, uh, why was he so not in the limelight? Well, I think part of it was just kind of bad timing. 
So, you know, his trip coincided with Pope Francis coming to visit the U.S. and also Cuba. You know, this is the first visit by a pope to the U.S. in a super long time. This is a very popular pope. So, first of all, you just had, like, especially TV networks go completely crazy over this. And in several cities, including New York, Time Warner Cable had a 24-hour news channel devoted just to the pope. And that got huge viewership. People are really interested. You know, Francis is this is seen as this transformative figure, and people are just really interested in him. And he was doing a whole lot of stuff. He spoke at the UN. He spoke to Congress. You know, he was he met with Obama. So there was just a lot there. You have the ongoing political campaign and Donald Trump, uh, which, as we've discussed before, has been taking up a lot of air. And so, you know, I think the the attention that got paid to she was just you know, really disrupted by what, what, you, what you all, there was just essentially only so much time and, you know, the, the media went for, these are the things that are going to bring in the most viewers, which are much more Pope and Trump. Yeah. And Shannon, you know, the, the Pope really was the big center of attention. I mean, yes, Trump is still getting a lot of attention and the kind of awkward throwdown with Putin between Putin and Obama obviously got some views and it was good for like the daily show to make fun of and things like that. But the Pope was really the big, the big emphasis this week within the U S media. How did you guys actually go about measuring who was being covered the most and who was being underplayed? So we got data um, from an outfit called media miser, which they go, they monitor online media, TV, print, radio, like a bunch of different outlets. And they basically just count up like the amount, you know, the amount the number of, whether it's segments or articles or whatever, devoted to each of these people. So you saw some really huge gaps. So, you know, in online news articles, sort of in the week leading up to the Pope's visit and through when the Pope is in the U.S., you know, he was mentioned online, you know, 187,000 times versus 55,000 times for she, you know, it was even bigger on TV, 240,000 hits for the Pope compared to 11,000 for she. Um, and even in print, you know, during that time, there were about 8,000 news articles about the Pope um, compared to less than 2,000 for Xi. So, I mean, that just that, that's a kind of a broad metric, a pretty rough metric. Even on the day that she had a state dinner in, in Washington with Obama, uh, there was a big gap between just the amount of time that TV news was spending on the Pope. Um, which was the day the Pope addressed Congress. So, you know, nearly half of the big nightly news reports were devoted to the Pope versus just 5% on the Chinese president. Yeah, I guess we should also note that it actually was a fairly productive week for President Xi while he was in the U.S. He gave that speech at the U.N. General Assembly where he announced a big contribution to U.N. peacekeeping capabilities, a similar announcement to its assistance to the African Union and he also got all the full decorum from, you know, from President Obama, the state dinner. I think that state dinner was like a barbecue and all kinds of other things. So we didn't give him as much attention here, but there's kind of an interesting contrast to be drawn between the way the U.S. media covered him and the way the Chinese media back home covered him, which obviously I think is going to be a lot more important to him anyways. It's kind of understandable his own constituency you know, is interested in following everything that the, their president's doing. So he got blanket coverage in China, you know, everything from his arrival on the West Coast through his trip to Washington and up to New York, which is not that surprising. And, you know, these these issues are clearly are, are of interest to the Chinese public the same way they 
should be of interest to the U.S. But I'd also point out, you know, around, you know, why we see so much attention to the Pope, not just because of the rarity of his visits, of, of, of the visits of a Pope, but think about the things the Pope talked about while he was here. He talked about immigration, right? I mean, that's, that's a huge issue at the moment in the political campaign. He talked about climate change. I mean, so you're, you're sort of seeing this sort of interesting thing happening where the Pope, who isn't a political leader, you know, is getting involved in the political conversation in a way that it's kind of unexpected, I think. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, he's going back to China today. It's Thursday. It's China's National Day, the celebration, the anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party there. And right now, what I think a lot of people throughout the world are wondering about is the health of the Chinese economy. It's incredibly unclear. And part of the issue is that we sort of don't know which economic indicators we can trust or to what extent we can trust them. But it seems at least obvious that the economy there is rebalancing from a model that it's been using for the better part of three or four decades, exports, investments, and one that's geared towards domestic Chinese consumption. But that change is wrenching and it's going to require a slowdown in Chinese growth with unbelievable and unpredictable consequences for a lot of other emerging economies. And I guess I wonder if maybe President Xi doesn't mind that at least within the U.S., that wasn't the center of attention for a little while because the Chinese economy and its impact on the U.S. and U.S. stock market and that kind of thing was a big deal for a little while, for a solid month or so. And it probably will flare up from time to time again. It's sort of unavoidable. And I guess I wonder if a more low-key reception in the U.S. that only occasionally focused on the good things that he was announcing, his speech at the U.N., the big state dinner, maybe he doesn't mind that so much. Yeah, and maybe he's happy to sort of to, to let Putin be, you know, the big sort of the bad, the, the guy. Big bad guy on the <laughs> on the global stage, you know, when it comes to the U.S. And I think it'll also be interesting to see when and if, you know, these issues, you've, as you've brought up with, with China's economy and, and the impact on the U.S., you know, play a real role in the election campaign. I mean, as we know, like U.S. elections tend to be super focused on domestic policy, not as much on foreign policy. But yeah, I mean, if you're kind of thinking about like, on the macro scale, like what sort of what are going to be the most pressing things this next president's going to deal with? Like certainly, you know, what's happening in China is way up there. Always fun trying to get inside the minds of like big, powerful foreign leaders, right? Like purely speculating and trying to understand what they could be thinking. <laughs> I think it's I, I think it's really a, a hopeless task, especially if you're talking about people like Putin or a potential President Trump. Doesn't stop us from trying. I think the next time you're on, we should just do like a guided tour of world leaders. And just like try to pretend that we know what they're thinking, right? We can give them all personality. Yes. We could give them tips. (laughs) (laughs) Shannon Vaughn, always a pleasure. Thanks, Cardiff. And in the third segment today, a favorite topic of mine, Cuba, where I spent some time reporting earlier this year. And we're going to talk about internet access in the country. Cuba is, of course, often described as one of the Western Hemisphere's least connected countries. But in the wake of the softening diplomatic relationship between the U.S. and Cuba, it looks like internet access in the country is starting to expand ever so slowly. But I've also got a great guest to discuss this with. Emily Parker is the author of Now I Know Who My Comrades Are, and she herself is also a fellow at New America, which, by the way, it's a total coincidence that she's coming in for the podcast episode where we're also talking with Anne-Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America. But we're thrilled to have Emily here. This book is really one of my my favorites. So thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. So 
your book, Now I Know Who My Comrades Are, is a favorite of mine. It's one that I've recommended quite a bit. Thank you. you start by writing that the three psychological obstacles to getting people to sort of confront authoritarian regimes are apathy, fear, and what's the third one? Isolation, right? Cuba is the country you choose to represent fear. Mm -hmm. So I want to start there. Sure. You started reporting on Cuba at the end of the last decade, mm -hmm. right? Talk about the climate of fear sure. that you sort of found when you got there for the first time. Sure. So as you rightly said, the book describes how apathy, fear, and isolation are very powerful weapons of authoritarian regimes. And in Cuba, I did find actually all three, but I chose to focus on fear. Cuba, as you know, has had a long history of citizen informers. So what I would constantly hear in Cuba was, you never know who is who. You never know if somebody at the cafe or if one of your former schoolmates or if one of your former neighbors will inform on you. Yeah, nunca sabe quién es quién. Is exactly. The, the phrase exactly. Like it was something bit, sure. I heard so many times as, as a warning, just as a statement of fact. People were constantly being careful about what they said and who they said it to. And so what was very interesting is also it was unclear sometimes what people were actually afraid of. It was a very general amorphous feeling of fear that something bad could happen if you hung out with the wrong people, if you criticized power, or if you just did the wrong thing. And I found this, the role of the internet in this society to be particularly interesting because the dissident bloggers that I met in Cuba, even though in theory they should have been the most afraid because they were having run-ins with the government and they were actually being very actively monitored – they were actually empowered by writing online. And they told me that by writing a blog, by expressing themselves freely, they were able to become less afraid. So I felt that Cuba was a really interesting case study of how the internet could actually help individuals overcome their fear. Sure. So we should probably put some context around this as well. So sure. Towards the end of the last decade, this was following a period of really terrible relations between the U.S. and mm -hmm. Cuba. Things had tightened up quite a bit. Under the Bush administration, Obama was about to start loosening things up, but he hadn't yet. But within Cuba itself, it was even darker than it is now. In mm -hmm. other words, in terms of internet access and in terms of the ability of Cubans to reach other Cubans, sure. things were terrible. So in the book, you focus on how Cubans had to start by reaching out to people outside of the country yes. because that's all they could do. Yes, yes. So that's absolutely right. Because, as you mentioned, Cuba has such low internet penetration, the role of the internet tended to be to reach other people outside of the country. So this could be the Cuban exile community. This could be other... They, they tended to write in Spanish, although some of the more popular blogs were translated. So... Yes, how would writing a blog empower an individual Cuban? It wasn't that they were trying to organize dissent or organize a revolution. They were making their voices heard outside of the country. And they were able to build networks of support outside of the country. And in some cases, this allowed... This serve to protect them. So for example, you know, in the past, if a Cuban dissident was arrested, we might not never know about it, especially a lower level Cuban dissident or a blogger, if they were detained, if the police mess with them. Now, these individuals had a mechanism for making that news known to the outside world. And I think that really emboldened them. And in some cases, I think it probably created a sense of greater caution among Cuban authorities to know that they couldn't just make some annoying Cuban blogger disappear. Yeah. And I mean, to give even more context here for our listeners who sure. don't know this, there is no free press in Cuba, mm -hmm. right? The main newspaper there is a state-run newspaper called Gramma, mm -hmm. right? And in the past, at least, 
a dissident blogger, as you said, could get arrested and nobody would have a clue. Mm -hmm. Slowly, they start getting the attention of people outside the country. One blogger in particular, Ioanni Sanchez, has become essentially like an international celebrity Mm -hmm. of some kind. Mm -hmm. But also, foreign journalists are at risk of being followed while they're there, right? And this is something that you talk about in your book, about your own sort of paranoia or fear. You were infected by it while you were there. And I remember you talked about how one night you stayed in a bed and breakfast at Casa mm-hmm. Particular mm-hmm. and you spent the whole night basically half awake yeah, because you were worried about whether or not you were going to get busted for reporting in the country. Sure. So I think for people who haven't been to Cuba, those portions of the book may say, like, seem totally unrelatable because that's that's what happened. There was this general feeling of fear, this general feeling of you never know who is who, you never know who will inform on you. You know, I tell a story in the book about sitting with a Cuban dissident blogger, um, Ioanni Sanchez's partner, Reynaldo, and and how we're in this 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 cafe and he thinks that these two women are taking photos of him on their phone. And, you know, I mean, just this sense of general paranoia everywhere you went. And even I, as someone who didn't live in Cuba and wasn't going to stay in Cuba for incredibly long amount of time, started feeling infected with that paranoia. I mean, some of it wasn't totally out of touch with reality. For example, I describe the story of an academic, Ted Henkin, who also has done a lot of great research on the blogosphere in Cuba. And he went to Cuba not long before one of my trips, talking to many of the same people. And when he was- The dissidents specifically. Yes. And when he was in the airport ready to leave, he was basically pulled aside and told, this will be your last trip to Cuba. And I think an even more terrifying example is that of Alan Gross. Alan Gross spent years in prison because he was, the Cubans thought that he was trying to instigate unrest by distributing telecom equipment in Cuba. So I think that this this issue of Americans coming to Cuba, talking to dissident bloggers, trying to in some way incite dissent, that was a very, very sensitive topic. And as an American, especially as you described, with relations pretty much non-existent, I didn't feel like I would have a lot of protection if something happened to me there. Sure. And uh, to clarify, Alan Gross was released from prison yes. from prison as part of this deal reached yes. on December 17th of mm-hmm. last year. Mm-hmm. But he'd been there for something like five years. Mm-hmm. He was in terrible shape. And the U.S. was not able to get him out so, right. For, right. for a while was, until, he, until quite recently. Right. The Cubans had accused him of trying to sneak in telecommunications equipment on behalf of USAID, mm-hmm. which is an American governmental organization. Mm-hmm. And and he was released as part of this deal. I think that is a, a fairly rare example. But in terms of journalists doing business in Cuba or journalists trying to do journalism in Cuba, uh, it's always been really tricky and even now is really hard to get a press visa, which the Cubans sure. at least nominally require for you to go there and do your work. Mm-hmm. They tend to only give very few of those. They tend to give them only to news organizations that are already based there that have a mm-hmm. that have a bureau there and essentially when that guy leaves when that reporter leaves the bureau they take it from him or her and then they give it to the next person right i spent a kind of a nightmarish time at the cuba special interest section in washington before it became the embassy earlier this year trying to get a press visa and actually nobody seemed to know what the process was like to get it because they just you know they just give so few of those away so what ends up happening is that journalists have to do like some workaround they end up going in through a foreign country or they go in under the basis that they're going in to see their family there or as a tourist or whatever. And then they do journalism, as I did while I was there, essentially under the radar. So even now, it's still kind of a little bit of a tricky thing. Well, exactly. And, you know, the truth is, is that 
the worst that probably would have happened to me in Cuba is that I would have been kicked out or I would have been told this will be your last trip to Cuba. But again, it was just that feeling of paranoia and of fear and of uncertainty that also affected me. And and I really think that it has a debilitating psychological impact because you start really thinking about worrying about what you say and worrying about what you do and worrying about the people that you talk to. And, and I, it was, I'm almost glad in a way that I had that experience because it made me understand better the psychology of people around sure. me. Did you think, do you think that you were followed at some point while you were doing your reporting? It's so hard to say because there's a line in, in the book that says the, um, that, that the line between an informer and just an ordinary person is razor thin, right? Because you just don't know. You never know who is who. Right. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, you never knew why somebody was asking you a question or what their goal was. So I, I don't know. I didn't feel anything overt, no. But it, it was all so vague and murky. And, and, you know, I know that I was spending time with dissident bloggers who I'm sure were monitored quite actively. Right. So they they were under much greater surveillance. Than- okay. Let's move ahead in time then to where we are now. Mm-hmm. Depending on which figures you cite, Cuban internet access is something like between either 3% and then on the sort of the, the best case scenario, 20% yeah. right, of the population has access to the internet. This is sort of appallingly low. Mm-hmm. But the laws there themselves are also contributing to this, mostly because there's no internet access allowed in the home. That's a big one. Um, and then there's kind of a, there's a, there's the problem of cost. I'd right? say that that's probably the biggest problem that I observed is the problem of cost. Internet access was just unaffordable for the average Cuban. You know, people would go to hotels and, and try to use the internet there, but that could cost, I don't know, that $8 an hour or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was so, 10 bucks for me earlier Yeah, this year. I mean, think about that. And you're talking about a country where, you know, the average income for a state worker could be something like $20 a month. You're going to pay $10 to use the internet? I mean, right. it's it's totally impossible. So, you know, there's that. Now um, there are these public Wi-Fi spots, right. which cost around $2 an hour. That's still actually high. That's not that's not a small amount for, for the average Cuban. But yeah, what I observed was that cost was one of the biggest impediments. There were other ways. I mean, people, Cubans are amazingly resourceful, right? So they'd always, they always found ways to to work within this very restrictive environment. So for example, you know, people had computers at home. They didn't have internet, as you said, but they had computers. So they would type their blog posts, save it on a flash drive, and then use the flash drive from a hotel or pass on that flash drive to another right. Cuban. Some people used the internet from embassies. Some embassies from various countries would offer internet access for some period of time. So there were various workarounds, but cost was definitely uh, cost, I think, is probably the biggest part of the story. I mean, when you compare Cuba with China, for example, you know, China has hundreds of millions of people on the internet. They have a very extensive censorship system, but it's it, in, in Cuba, they don't need to have that censorship system because it's so expensive for people to get online that there has not, at least until now, it has not been possible for a critical mass of Cubans to come online. Right. And I mean... <sighs> It's it's intriguing. You sort of describe the quasi-apartheid system mm-hmm. that exists in Cuba where Cubans themselves don't have access to all the same things that tourists do. Sure. I think some of that has been loosened in recent years, the access to hotels. Mm-hmm. But of course, what Cuban can stay in a really nice sure. hotel for Westerners because, again, the problem of cost. But it exists in so many other areas, mm-hmm. too. Um, and it seems like Internet access is a really big one. Sure. You know? Sure. Sure. I mean – 
I think, although even for over the past few years, I mean, even for tourists that come to Cuba, they're going to be shocked at how hard it is to get online. I mean, they can wait for the hotel. It's still, it's, I mean, it's not as expensive for a foreigner, but it's still expensive $10, you know, if you really want to spend a lot of time online. You know, a a Cuban friend recently visited the U.S. and he just could not get over the fact that he could walk around with a smartphone and constantly look at Facebook and constantly, I mean, it was totally unfathomable to him. I mean, you know, Cuban internet access, you Usually requires going to your work if you have internet access there, going to a hotel, going to an right. embassy. The idea that you could just walk down Fifth Avenue constantly seeing messages coming in and looking at the internet was like a completely new world for him. I yeah. mean, that that reality does not yet exist in Cuba for for a critical mass of Cubans. Here's here's another question because you now have experience witnessing these kinds of dissident movements in three countries that are you know all quite different in so many sure. ways. Cuba itself is obviously different from Russia and China in a number of ways. I guess I'm wondering if you think that even the mild slackening of restrictions in the last year or so, the opening of the public hotspots, the slashing of the prices, if you think that that pretends like a sort of greater movement or if it's a a point of no return that we've gone past it. Now, if Cubans can get in touch with other Cubans, if they can get in touch with the rest of the world, that there's no going back. I think that once you let the genie out of the bottle, it's kind of hard to put back in. I mean, you're already seeing in these articles about these Wi-Fi hotspots just how much demand there is. There's such intense demand in Cuba just among young people, among everybody for Internet access, right? So I think once they get a taste of it and and get a taste of real Internet access, not one hour at a hotel once a month, I think it's going to be pretty hard to quash that. But the larger question here is really about Cuba's political direction. And I think it's it's very early to say because, you know, you look at China, right? China has, again, hundreds of millions of people on the internet. It hasn't exactly created a free society, right? right. So I would, I, I suspect, I, I've always suspected that Cuba's looking at China and being like, wow, how did they do that? That's pretty, that's pretty impressive. It will be a little bit harder for Cuba to emulate that model because China started quite early and they're actually quite good at it. But I I think just having the internet on its own will not necessarily bring freedom of speech. It's going to really depend on how the government decides to bring the internet in. From what I've seen in in Cuba over my years of research, it's hard to imagine Cuban authorities saying, okay, everybody, you know, now you can say whatever you want and do whatever you want. That, that seems hard to imagine at this point in time. But a lot of it is just going to depend on which direction Cuba goes. Isn't Some of this is, just has to do with size as well, right? Mm-hmm. China is this massive country with one point something billion people. Mm-hmm. Cuba has 11 million people, mm-hmm. and they're all concentrated on a small island mm-hmm. south of yeah. Florida, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't know, uh, you know, during the Pope's visit, for instance, a lot of the press was great. And you would think that the desire to keep the relationship with the U.S. warm, especially now, would lead to some change. And yet some dissidents who wanted to go visit the Pope were arrested sure. before they could get there. Right, right. Know? Those stories are still happening, which I think we should pay attention to when everybody's talking about, you know, this new era for Cuba. It's These stories are still taking place, arrests and detentions. And so it's it's definitely part of the larger picture. But it's, I think it's just too early to tell where Cuba will go. But where the the political direction of the Cuban government will define how the Internet plays out there. 
Okay. So any any plans to go back and, and see how <laughs> progress is? How progress? I, yeah. Is- I mean, I, I I I'm really curious. There's been so many changes, and you know, it's it's actually quite amazing. It's what another amazing part of this story is that some of the bloggers in my book have been able to freely travel. I mean, that's big a change. I think that's happened more on the Cuban side. You know, when I met them in in in, in Cuba, it seemed completely impossible to imagine them ever leaving the country. And I've seen them now. I've seen them in Miami. They've gone to Europe. And and so that's, there's just been so many changes. And I think for them, that's been a really important experience too. So I, I think, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a really interesting next couple of years. Emily Parker, fellow at New America, author of Now I Know Who My Comrades Are. It is now out in paperback. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. And in the follow-up segment, we've got Amelia Mahasik, as always, to tell us what we can do better and what we're already doing pretty well, we hope. Amelia, how Getting are you? Getting better all the time. Better all the time. Uh, Last week's episode, what stood out? So, Martin Wolf, I know I normally give you a hard time for things running on a bit, you yes. know, a bit too discursive. Martin, I could have had a lot more of Martin. Yes. It was a sh- I know it was shortened segment deliberately because we're going to have this fantastic alpha chatterbox longer segment where everybody can hear the whole 90 minutes yes of mountain wolf absolutely uh and i but i felt like it was cut too short i think it was only two questions we got to yeah on him so maybe he could have gone to three you know okay so a little bit a little bit more wolf more wolf you can always have more wolf really i think so you know i think the question is how to yeah how much is enough for how much is appropriate for alpha chat itself so a little bit more wolf and don't be afraid to go longer than usual if the interview is going really well. Which I for think, him is it. Yeah, no, okay. and where he's he's a star. So, and the other star, speaking of, is Ms. Amy Keene. Absolutely. In fact, uh, the subject that you were discussing last week seems to just roll on and on, which was the politicians looking into drug pricing. Right. And now the market's sort of taken a hit. Various drug companies are getting subpoenaed for information. So I'd like to hear more about that. Uh, yeah, that David, was great. David Crow, who was on with Amy, was really excellent at explaining what's going on in that industry, why it's such a big deal. Worth pointing out, I think, that David's having a great year of reporting on pharma for the Financial Times. Like just a lot of interesting stories, and he's doing a great job covering it. And I'm not just saying that because he works at the FT. It's actually been quite delightful to read his stories. But Amy Keene, our epically amazing producer, who's right this very second giving me the side eye, did a great job in her role as guest host. I think we should have her on more. Amelia Mahasik, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Cardiff. And that's all the time we have for today's show. Thanks again for listening. And as always, you can call us at 917-551-5012 or email us at alphachat at ft.com. Finally, you can tweet me directly at at Cardiff Garcia. I want to remind you one last time that we have a brand new long form only podcast. It's called Alpha Chatterbox. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We really hope you like it. We've got some fantastic conversations already in the can that we'll be releasing in the coming weeks. And we're always in search of ideas for new people to interview. So let us know what you think and send those recommendations along. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Keene. She's incredible. I'm running out of superlatives to describe her with. Thanks so much for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We will see you again next week on Alpha Chat. Alpha Chat.